Sojourn. Chapter 5. The Stalk of Doom. The goblin guards dove to the side as mighty Ugulu tore through the curtains and exited the cave complex. The open, crisp air of the chill mountain night felt good to the barjest. Better still when Ugulu thought of the task before him. He looked to the scimitar that Tefanus had delivered, the crafted weapon appearing tiny in Ugulu's huge, dark-skinned hand. Ugulu unconsciously dropped the weapon to the ground. He didn't want to use it this night. The bar just wanted to put his own deadly weapons, claws and teeth to use, to taste his victims and devour their life essence so that he could become stronger. Ugulu was an intelligent creature, though, and his rationale quickly overruled the base instincts that so desired the taste of blood. There was purpose in this night's work, a method that promised greater gains, and the elimination of a very real threat that the Dark Elf's unexpected appearance posed. With a guttural snarl, a small protest from Ugulu's base urges, the barges grabbed the scimitar again and pounded down the mountainside, covering long distances with each stride. The beast stopped on the edge of a ravine, where a single narrow trail wound down along the sheer facing of the cliff. It would take him many minutes to scale down the dangerous trail. But Ugulu was hungry. Ugulu's consciousness fell back into itself, focusing on that spot of his being that fluctuated with magical energy. He was not a creature of the material plane, and extraplanar creatures inevitably brought with them powers that would seem magical to creatures of the host plane. Ugulu's eyes glowed orange with excitement when he emerged from his trance just a few moments later. He peered down the cliff, visualizing a spot on the ground far below, perhaps a quarter of a mile away. A shimmering, multicolored door appeared before Ugulu, hanging in the air beyond the lip of the ravine. His laughter sounded more like a roar. Ugulu pushed open the door and found, just beyond its threshold, the spot he had visualized. He moved through, circumventing the material distance to the ravine's floor with a single extra-dimensional step. Ugulu ran on, down the mountain and toward the human village, ran on eagerly to set the gears of his cruel plan turning. As the barges approached the lowest mountain slopes, he again found that magical corner of his mind. Ugulu's stride slowed. Then the creature stopped altogether, jerking spasmodically and gurgling indecipherably. Bones ground together with popping noises, skin ripped and reformed, darkening nearly to black. When Ugulu started away again, his strides, the strides of a dark elf, were not so long. Bartholomew Thistledown sat with his father, Marque, and his eldest son that evening in the kitchen of the lone farmhouse on the western outskirts of Maldabar. Bartholomew's wife and mother had gone out to the barn to settle the animals for the night, and the four youngest children were safely tucked in their beds in the small room off the kitchen. On a normal night, the rest of the Thistledown family, all three generations, would also be snugly snoring in their beds. But Bartholomew feared that many nights would pass before any semblance of normalcy returned to the quiet farm. A dark elf had been spotted in the area, and while Bartholomew wasn't convinced that the stranger meant harm, the drow easily could have killed Connor and the other children. He knew that the drow's appearance would cause a stir in Maldubar for quite some time. We could get back to the town proper, Connor offered. They'd find us a place, and all of Maldubar'd stand behind us then. Stand behind us, Bartholomew responded with sarcasm. 
And would they be leaving their farms each day to come out here and help us with our work? Which of them do you think might ride out here every night to tend the animals? Connor's head dropped at his father's berating. He slipped one hand to the hilt of his sword, reminding himself that he was no child. Still, Connor was silently grateful for the supporting hand his grandfather casually dropped on his shoulder. You gotta think, boy, before you make such calls. Bartholomew continued, his tone mellowing as he began to realize the profound effect his harsh words had on his son. The farm's your lifeblood. It's the only thing that matters. We could send one of the little ones, Marky put in. The boy's got a right to be fearing with the dark elf about and all. Bartholomew turned away and resignedly dropped his chin into his palm. He hated the thought of breaking apart the family. Family was the source of strength, as it had been for five generations with Thistledowns and beyond. Yet, here Bartholomew was berating Connor, even though the boy had spoken only for the good of the family. I should have thought better, Dad, he heard Connor whisper, and he knew that his own pride could not hold out against the realization of Connor's pain. I am sorry. Ah, uh, you needn't be. Bartholomew replied, turning back to the others. I'm the one that should apologize. All of us got our neck hairs up with this dark elf about. You're right in your thinking, Connor. We're too far out here to be safe. As if in answer came a sharp crack of breaking wood and a muffled cry from outside the house, from the direction of the barn. In that single horrible moment, Bartholomew Thistledown realized that he should have come to his decision earlier, when the revealing light of day offered his family some measure of protection. Connor reacted first, running to the door and throwing it open. The farmyard was deathly quiet. Not the chirp of a cricket disturbed the surrealistic scene. A silent moon loomed low in the sky, throwing long and devious shadows from every fence post and tree. Connor watched, not daring to breathe, through the passing of a second that seemed like an hour. The barn door creaked and toppled from its hinges. A dark elf walked out into the farmyard. Connor shut the door and fell back against it, needing its tangible support. Ma, he breathed to the startled faces of his father and grandfather. Drow. The older thistledown men hesitated, their minds whirling through the tumult of a thousand horrible notions. They simultaneously leaped from their seats, Bartholomew going for a weapon, and Marque moving toward Connor and the door. Their sudden action freed Connor from his paralysis. He pulled the sword from his belt and swung the door open, meaning to rush out and face the intruder. A single spring of his powerful legs had brought Ugulu right up to the farmhouse door. Connor charged over to the threshold blindly, slammed into the creature, which only appeared as a slender drow, and bounced back, stunned, into the kitchen. Before any of the men could react, the scimitar slammed down on the top of Connor's head with all the strength the bargest had behind it, nearly splitting the young man in half. Ulgulu stepped unhindered into the kitchen. He saw the old man, the lesser remaining enemy, reaching out for him, and called upon his magical nature to defeat the attack. A wave of imparted emotion swept over Marque Thistledown, a wave of despair and terror so great that he could not combat it. His wrinkled mouth shot open in a silent scream, and he staggered backward, crashing into a wall and clutching helplessly at his chest. Bartholomew Thistledown's charge carried the weight of unbridled rage behind it. 
The farmer growled and gasped unintelligible sounds as he lowered his pitchfork and bore down on the intruder that had murdered his son. The slender, assumed frame that held the barges did not diminish Ugulu's gigantic strength. As the pitchfork's tip closed the last inches to the creature's chest, Ugulu slapped a single hand at the weapon's shaft. Bartholomew stopped in his tracks, the butt end of the pitchfork driving hard into his belly, blowing away his breath. Ugulu raised his arm quickly, lifting Bartholomew clear off the floor and slamming the farmer's head into a ceiling beam with enough force to break his neck. The bargest casually tossed Bartholomew and his pitiful weapon across the kitchen and stalked over to the old man. Perhaps Marque saw him coming. Perhaps the old man was too torn by pain and anguish to register any events in the room. Ugulu moved to him and opened his mouth wide. He wanted to devour the old man, to feast on this one's life force as he had the younger women out in the barn. Ugulu had lamented his actions in the barn as soon as the ecstasy of the kill had faded. Again, the barjest rationale displaced his base urges. With a frustrated snarl, Ugulu drove the scimitar into Marque's chest, ending the old man's pain. Ugulu looked around at his gruesome work, lamenting that he had not feasted on the strong young farmers, but reminded himself of the greater gains his actions had brought him this night. A confused cry led him to the side room, where the children slept. Drizzt came down from the mountains tentatively the next day. His wrist, where the sprite had stabbed him, throbbed, but the wound was clean and Drizzt was confident that it would heal. He crouched in the brush on the hillside behind the Thistledown farm, ready to try another meeting with the children. Drizzt had seen too much of the human community and had spent too much time alone to give up. This was where he intended to make his home, if he could get beyond the obvious prejudicial barriers, personified most keenly by the large man and the snarling dogs. From this angle, Drizzt couldn't see the blasted barn door, and all appeared as it should on the farm in the pre-dawn glow. The farmers did not come out with the sun, however, and always before they had been out no later than its arrival. A rooster crowed and several animals shuffled around the barnyard, but the house remained silent. Drizzt knew this was unusual, and he figured that the encounter in the mountains on the previous day had sent the farmers into hiding. Possibly the family had left the farm altogether, seeking the shelter of a larger cluster of houses in the village proper. The thoughts weighed heavily on Drizzt. Again, he had disrupted the lives of those around him simply by showing his face. He remembered Blingdenstone, the city of Surfneblin gnomes, and the tumult and potential danger his appearance had brought to him. The sunny day brightened, but a chill breeze blew down off the mountains. Still, not a person stirred in the farmyard or within the house, as far as Driz could tell. The drow watched it all, growing more concerned with each passing second. A familiar buzzing noise shook Driz from his contemplation. He drew his lone scimitar and glanced around. He wished he could call Gwenhyver, but not enough time had passed since the cat's last visit. The panther needed to rest enough to walk beside Drizzt. Seeing nothing in his immediate area, Drizzt moved between the trunks of two large trees, a more defensible position against the sprite's blinding speed. The buzzing was gone an instant later, and the sprite was nowhere to be seen. Drizzt spent the rest of that day moving around the brush, setting tripwires and digging shallow pits. If he and the sprite were to battle again, the drow was determined to change the outcome. The lengthening shadows and crimson western sky brought Drizzt's attention back to the Thistledown farm. No candles were lighted within the farmhouse to defeat the deepening gloom. 
Drizzt grew ever more concerned. The return of the nasty sprite had poignantly reminded him of the dangers in the region, and with the continuing inactivity in the farmyard, a fear budded within him, took root, and quickly grew into a sense of dread. Twilight darkened into night. The moon rose and climbed steadily in the eastern sky. Still, not a candle burned in the house, and not a sound came through the darkened windows. Drizzt slipped out of the brush and darted across the short back field. He had no intentions of getting close to the house. He just wanted to see what he might learn. Perhaps the horses and the farmer's small wagon would be gone, leading evidence to Drizzt's earlier suspicion that the farmers had taken refuge in the village. When he came around the side of the barn and saw the broken door, Drizzt knew instinctively that this was not the case. His fears grew with every step. He peered through the barn door and was not surprised to see the wagon sitting in the middle of the barn and the stalls full of horses. To the side of the wagon, though, lay the older woman, crumbled and covered in her own dried blood. Driz went to her and knew at once that she was dead, killed by some sharp-edged weapon. Immediately his thoughts went to the evil sprite and his own missing scimitar. When he found the other corpse behind the wagon, he knew that some other monster, something more vicious and powerful, had been involved— Driz couldn't even identify the second half-eaten body. Driz ran from the barn to the farmhouse, throwing out all caution. He found the bodies of the thistledown men in the kitchen and, to his ultimate horror, the children lying too still in their beds. Waves of revulsion and guilt rolled over the drow when he looked upon the young bodies. The word Drizit chimed painfully in his mind at the sight of the sandy-haired lad. The tumult of Driz's emotions were too much for him. He covered his ears against the damning word Drizit, but it echoed endlessly, haunting him, reminding him. Unable to find his breath, Driz ran from the house. If he'd searched the room more carefully, he would have found, under the bed, his missing scimitar, snapped in half, and left for the villagers. Part 2 The Ranger does anything in all the world force a heavier weight upon one's shoulders than guilt? I have felt the burden often, have carried it over many steps on long roads. Guilt resembles a sword with two edges. On the one hand, it cuts for justice, imposing practical morality upon those who fear it. Guilt, the consequence of conscience. It is what separates the goodly persons from the evil. Given a situation that promises gain, most drow can kill another, kin or otherwise, and walk away carrying no emotional burden at all. The drow assassin might fear retribution, but will shed no tears for his victim. To humans, and to surface elves, and to all the other goodly races, the suffering imposed by conscience will usually far outweigh any external threats. Someone conclude that guilt, conscience, is the primary difference between the varied races of the realms. In this regard, guilt must be considered a positive force. But there is another side to that weighted emotion. Conscience does not always adhere to rational judgment. Guilt is always a self-imposed burden, but is not always rightly imposed. So it was for me along the road from Menzoberranson to Icewind Dale. I carried out of Menzoberranson guilt for Zach Nefane, my father, sacrificed on my behalf. I carried into Blingenstone guilt for Belwar Disengulp, the Surf Neblin my brother had maimed. Along the many roads there came many other burdens. 
Clacker, killed by the monster that hunted for me, the gnolls, slain by my own hand, and the farmers, most painfully, that simple farm family murdered by the barjest whelp. Rationally, I knew that I was not to blame, that the actions were beyond my influence, or in some cases, as with the gnolls, that I had acted properly. But rationale is little defense against the weight of guilt. In time, bolstered by the confidence of trusted friends, I came to throw off many of these burdens. Others remain, and always shall. I accept that this is inevitable, and use the weight to guide my future steps. This, I believe, is the true purpose of conscience. Drizzt Duarten Chapter 6 Sundabar Oh, enough, Fret! The tall woman said to the white-robed, white-bearded dwarf, batting his hands away. She ran her fingers through her thick brown hair, messing it considerably. Tisk tisk, the dwarf replied, immediately moving his hands back to the dirty spot on the woman's cloak. He brushed frantically, but the ranger's continual shifting kept him from accomplishing much. Why, Mistress Falconhand, I do believe that you would do well to consult a few books on proper behavior. I just rode in from Silvermoon, Dove Falconhand replied indignantly, tossing a wink to Gabriel, the other fighter in the room, a tall and stern-faced man. One tends to collect some dirt on the road. Nearly a week ago, the dwarf protested. You attended the banquet last night in this very cloak. The dwarf then noticed that in his fuss over Dove's cloak, he had smudged his own silken robes, and that catastrophe turned his attention from the ranger. Dear Fret, Dove went on, licking a finger and casually rubbing it over the spot on her cloak, you are the most unusual of attendants. The dwarf's face went beet red, and he stamped a shiny slipper on the tiled floor. Attendant? he huffed. I should say. Then do, Dove laughed. I am the most, one of the most accomplished sages in the North. My thesis concerning the proper etiquette of racial banquets, or lack of proper etiquette, Gabriel couldn't help but interrupt. The dwarf turned on him sourly. At least where dwarves are concerned, the tall fighter finished with an innocent shrug. The dwarf trembled visibly, and his slippers played a respectable beat on the hard floor. Oh, dear Fret, Dove offered, dropping a comforting hand on the dwarf's shoulder and running it along the length of the perfectly trimmed yellow beard. Fred, the dwarf retorted sharply, pushing the ranger's hand away. Fredigar! Dove and Gabriel looked at each other for one brief, knowing moment, then cried out the dwarf's surname in an explosion of laughter. Rock Crusher. Fredigar Quill Dipper would be more to the point. Gabriel added. One look at the fuming dwarf told the man that the time had passed for leaving. So he scooped up his pack and darted from the room, pausing only to slip one final wink Dove's way. I only desired to help. The dwarf dropped his hands into impossibly deep pockets, and his head drooped low. So you have? Dove tried to comfort him. I mean, you do have an audience with Helm Dwarf Friend. Fret went on, regaining some pride. One should be proper when seeing the master of Sundabar. Indeed, one should, 
Dove readily agreed. Yet all I have to wear you see before you, dear Fred, stained and dirtied from the road. I am afraid that I shall not cut a very fine figure in the eyes of Sundabar's master. He and my sister have become such friends. It was Dove's turn to feign a vulnerable point, and though her sword had turned many a giant into vulture food, the strong ranger could play this game better than most. Whatever shall I do? She cocked her head curiously as she glanced at the dwarf. Perhaps, she teased, if only... Fret's face began to brighten at the hint. No, Dove said with a heavy sigh. I could never impose so upon you. Fret verily bounced with glee, clapping his thick hands together. Indeed you could, Mistress Falconhand, indeed you could. Dove bit her lip to forestall any further demeaning laughter as the excited dwarf skipped out of the room. While she often teased Fret, Dove would readily admit that she loved the little dwarf. Fred had spent many years in Silvery Moon, where Dove's sister ruled, and had many contributions to the famed library there. Fred really was a noted sage, known for his extensive research into the customs of various races, both good and evil, and he was an expert on issues demi-human. He was also a fine composer. How many times, Dove wondered with sincere humility, had she ridden along a mountain trail whistling a cheery melody composed by this very same dwarf? Dear Fret, the ranger whispered under her breath when the dwarf returned, a silken gown draped over one arm, but carefully folded so that it would not drag across the floor. Assorted jewelry and a pair of stylish shoes in his other hand, a dozen pins sticking out from between his pursed lips, and a measuring string looped over one ear. Dove hid her smile and decided to give the dwarf this one battle. She would tiptoe into Helm Dwarf Friend's audience hall in a silken gown, the picture of ladydom, with the diminutive sage huffing proudly by her side. All the while, Dove knew, the shoes would pinch and bite at her feet, and the gown would find some place to itch where it should not reach. Alas, for the duties of station, Dove thought. And she stared at the gown and accessories. She looked into Fret's beaming face and realized that it was worth all the trouble. Alas for the duties of friendship, she mused. The farmer had ridden straight through for more than a day. The sighting of a dark elf often had such effects on simple villagers. He had taken two horses out of Maldabar, one he'd left a score of miles behind, halfway between the two towns. If he was lucky, he'd find the animal unharmed on the return trip. The second horse, the farmer's prize stallion, was beginning to tire. Still, the farmer bent low in the saddle, spurring the steed on. The torches of Sundabar's night watch, high up on the city's thick stone walls, were in sight. Stop! Speak your name! came the formal cry from the captain of the gate guards when the rider approached half an hour later. Dove leaned on Fret for support as they followed Helm's attendant down the long and decorated corridor to the audience room. The ranger could cross a rope bridge without handrails, could fire her bow with deadly accuracy, stop a charging steed, could scramble up a tree in full chain armor, sword and shield in hand. But she could not, for all her experience and agility, manage the fancy shoes that Fret had squeezed her feet into. And this gown! 
she whispered in exasperation, knowing that the impractical garment would split in six or seven ways if she had occasion to swing her sword while wearing it, let alone inhaled too abruptly. Fret looked up at her, wounded. This gown is surely the most beautiful, Dove stuttered, careful not to send the tidy dwarf into a tantrum. Truly, I can find no words suitable for my gratitude, dear Fred. The dwarf's gray eyes shone brightly, though he wasn't sure that he believed a word of it. Either way, Fred figured that Dove cared enough about him to go along with his suggestions, and that fact was all that really mattered to him. I beg a thousand pardons, my lady, came a voice from behind. The whole entourage turned to see the captain of the night watch, a farmer by his side, trotting down the somber hallway. "'Good captain!' Fret protested at the violation of protocol. "'If you desire an audience with the lady, you must make an introduction in the hall. Then, and only then, if only the master allows, you may—' Dove dropped a hand on the dwarf's shoulder to silence him. She recognized the urgency etched onto the men's faces— a look the adventuring heroine had seen many times. "'Do go on, Captain,' she prompted. To placate Fret, she added, "'We have a few moments before our audience is set to begin. Master Helm will not be kept waiting.' The farmer stepped forward boldly. "'Thousand pardons for myself, my lady,' he began, fingering his cap nervously in his hands. "'I am but a farmer from Maldabar, a small village north.' "'I know of Maldabar.' Dove assured him. Many times I have viewed the place from the mountains, a fine and sturdy community. The farmer brightened at her description. No harm has befallen Maldabar, I pray. Not as yet, my lady, the farmer replied. But we've sighted trouble. We're not to doubt in that. He paused and looked to the captain for support. Drow. Dove's eyes widened at the news. Even fret, Tapping his foot impatiently throughout the conversation, stopped and took note. "'How many?' Dove asked. "'Only one, as we've seen. We're fearing he's a scout or a spy, and uh, up to no good.' Dove nodded her agreement. "'Who has seen the drow?' "'Children first, the farmer replied, drawing a sigh from Fret and settling the dwarf's foot impatiently tapping once again. "'Children?' The dwarf huffed. The farmer's determination did not waver. Then McGristle saw him, he said, eyeing Dove directly. And McGristle's seen a lot. What is a McGristle? Fret huffed. Roddy McGristle, Dove answered, somewhat sourly before the farmer could explain. A noted bounty hunter and fur trapper. The drow killed one of Roddy's dogs, the farmer put in excitedly and nearly cut down Roddy. Dropped a tree right on him. He lost an ear for the experience. Dove didn't quite understand what the farmer was talking about. She really didn't need to. A dark elf had been seen and confirmed in the region, and that fact alone set the ranger into motion. She flipped off her fancy shoes and handed them to Fret, then told one of the attendants to go straight off and find her traveling companions, and told the other to deliver her regrets to the master of Sundabar. But Lady Falconhand, Fret cried. No time for pleasantries, Dove replied, and Fret could tell by her obvious excitement that she was not too disappointed at cancelling her audience with Helm. Already she was wiggling about, 
trying to open the catch at the back of her magnificent gown. "'Your sister will not be pleased,' Fret growled loudly over the tapping of his foot. "'My sister hung up her backpack long ago,' Dove retorted. "'But mine still wears the fresh dirt of the road.' "'Indeed,' the dwarf mumbled, not in a complimentary way. "'You mean to come, then?' the farmer asked hopefully. "'Of course,' Dove replied. "'No reputable ranger would ignore the sighting of a dark elf. "'My three companions and I will set out for Maldabar this very night, "'though I beg that you remain here, good farmer. "'You have ridden hard, it is obvious, and need sleep.' "'Dove glanced around curiously for a moment, "'then put a finger on her pursed lips. "'What?' the annoyed dwarf asked her. "'Dove's face brightened as her gaze dropped down to fret. "'I have little experiences with dark elves,' she began. And my companions, to my knowledge, have never dealt with one. Her widening smile set Fret back on his heels. Come, dear Fret, Dove purred at the dwarf, her bare feet slapping conspicuously on the tiled floor. She led Fret, the captain, and the farmer from Maldabar down the hallway to Helm's audience room. Fret was confused and hopeful for a moment by Dove's sudden change of direction. As soon as Dove began talking to Helm, Fret's master, apologizing for the unexpected inconvenience and asking Helm to send along one who might aid in the mission to Maldabar, the dwarf began to understand. By the time the sun found its way above the eastern horizon the next morning, Dove's party, which included an elven ranger and two powerful human fighters, had ridden more than ten miles from Sundabar's heavy gate. Ugh! Fret groaned when the light increased. He rode a sturdy Adbar pony at Dove's side. See how the mud has soiled my fine clothes? Surely it will be the end to us all, to die filthy on a godforsaken road. Pen a song about it, Dove suggested, returning to the widening smiles of her other three companions. The Ballad of the Five Choked Adventurers It Shall Be Named. Fret's angry glare lasted only a moment it took Dove to remind him that Helm's dwarf friend, the master of Sundabar himself, had commissioned Fret to travel along. 